Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Is your ego getting in the way of your having an amazing relationship? How would you even know? And if it is getting in the way, what can you do about it? So that your capacity for love, relationship, and intimacy deepens, along with your courage and your ability to get over the things that are blocking you. Listen up, ego. I'm talking to you. I know you're trying to do it right and to serve the being that you belong to, to help that person stay strong and safe and loved in a complicated world. For a moment, though, ego, I'm going to ask you to simply listen. Instead of listening to this conversation with your ears, see if you can listen to this conversation through your heart, and then see if that changes anything for you. Today's guest is Dave Rico a psychotherapist, teacher, workshop leader, and author of the well-known book, How to Be an Adult in Relationships, The Five Keys to Mindful Loving. In this conversation, we explore topics found in his more recent book, How to Be an Adult in Love, Letting Love in Safely and Showing it Recklessly, and his brand new book, You Are Not What You Think, The Egoless Path to Self-Esteem and Generous Love. You will learn key questions to help you assess your own ego and ways of surrendering that actually help build self-esteem, address old wounds and fears, and to be fully loving in all of your relationships, to actually evolve your capacity for love. You'll also be reminded and awakened to the ways in which taking care of yourself is in itself an act of love. This week's show guide is very detailed, so I suggest that if you like this episode, you take a moment to download it, either at neilsatin.com slash adult, or by texting the word passion to the number 33444 and following the instructions. Dave Rico, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thanks for inviting me. Great. So your book, How to Be an Adult in Love, such a deep and comprehensive approach to thinking about how we actually evolve our capacity for love as humans. And I'm curious if we could just start, if you could frame a little bit about what this book represents for you in terms of the evolution of your thought about how to, how to be in relationship, how to love. I would say, first of all, that uh, I consider it the best book I've ever written. Uh, I feel like I have finally said all that I wanted to say about um, what it means to be human and loving. And it feels as, to me as if uh, the way I've expressed it in this book uh, is my most mature take on it. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, 10 years from now, I won't have another uh, sense of it. But as of now, uh, I really uh, like the way I put it all together. You know, this, this book is the 10-year anniversary of my more popular book, which is called How to Be an Adult in Relationships. And so this is like uh, 10 years later and expanded from thinking about love as directed to a partner to 
love as directed to ourselves, our partner, and those near and dear, and all beings. And this wider range of the expression of love came to me from the Buddhist practice called loving kindness, in which you beam out love to yourself, to others who are close to you, to those who are neutral to you, to the people that you don't really like, and to all beings with equal force. So in Star Wars, when when Luke is advised, call upon the force, which is the force of grace, a power beyond our ego that helps us evolve in the way that we are called to evolve. Now that I see love as our main calling and that it's meant to extend to ourselves along a spectrum from ourselves to everyone, then um, I've come to appreciate how being loving is the equivalent of being fully human. Mm. And fully human means calling upon forces that are beyond the human, what in religion is called grace. So I believe that um, you can learn how to love, but there's also a grace in the universe or higher power, God, however you want to describe it, that is helping us do this and that wants us to do it. Yeah, and that that has actually been a topic of conversation on the podcast. Um, for one thing, to to take relationship out of the realm of just um, what you think about another person and how you feel about another person and to actually incorporate spirit and awareness of spirit in terms of um, how you how you seek healing for yourself and growth, particularly in difficult times mm-hmm. and um, and also in finding ways to connect with a partner in difficult times. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's the context for if I'm if I'm em- embracing a practice of loving kindness and extending love out um, to everyone, um, even my ex-wife, then what is the what's the context for a romantic partnership? in that greater field of, and I'm loving everyone. That the romantic love will have the fully erotic dimension and the love that's extended to everyone has what the Greeks called agape kind of love. So they distinguish between Erotic love, which is um, what you're describing, like what happens in an intimate relationship, although it also has to do with our creativity. So 
we can have erotic feelings all over the place, not necessarily sexual. But uh, the highest form of love in the Greek, ancient Greek view is agape, which is the selfless, unconditional, and utterly limitless, that's why I have the word reckless in the subtitle, way of showing love that uh, ultimately has no bounds. Something like, say, the way we, the traditional way of thinking of how God loves, he loves everyone. That is actually a way of describing our own highest calling. And how do you find that that affects a person's capacity to handle the challenges of intimate partnership? The main way that it helps is you are subjugating your own ego demands and entitlements to the purposes of the relationship. So instead of using the relationship to solidify and assert your own ego purposes, you are dispossessing yourself of ego to gratify the relationship purposes. If that's how you're present in the partnership, you have become one who is tending the relationship rather than using it so you can feel better about yourself or so that you can be more in control. So to come into a relationship in a healthy way, an intimate relationship, would require that kind of surrender because the alternative, which is, let's say, the style of the arrogant, entitled ego, would be a, an obstacle to expressing love. Since love is about giving of oneself, not uh, being sure you get what's coming to you, it's more about how can I give to the other? And obviously, if it really works, the other is doing the same thing towards you. So in the romantic phase, since you brought that up already, uh, before, Maybe this would be a good example to use. In the romantic phase, your ego meets an ego ideal. The ideal that you had in mind, the kind of person that you wanted. And during this romantic phase, two egos are meeting two ego ideals. In the next phase of most relationships, after the romantic part has kind of quieted down somewhat, then you might start having a few struggles. And now the ego ideal 
starts to erode and you see the person as he or she really is. So now what you have is two egos looking directly at each other with no ideal pink, or rather rose-colored glasses to see through. So now in, the, in this phase, I see your ego, I see you, warts and all, and just how self-centered you really are, or how self-promoting you really are, or how selfish you really are, to whatever extent any of that might be true. And uh, you start to, you have a much more realistic view of the other person. During that phase, this conflict phase, the work is to confront this ego um, dimension of ourselves and uh, see if we can let go of it in favor of a more giving and loving response. When that happens, then we go into, in other words, when we address our issues and try to process them and work through them in the relationship, all, as I say in the book, these are all acts of love. These are not just psychological techniques. Oh, we should look at our problems. We should talk about and express our feelings about our problems. We should see how our problems are hooked up to things that have happened to us in the past. And then we should make new agreements so that things will work out better. And that's how we resolve our conflicts. All of that that I've just described looks like a set of psychological exercises or techniques that will help you have a more effective relationship. And certainly they are that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying now is that when we commit ourselves to that style, it's, it's a loving act that increases our connection. I define love as caring connection. So I show that I really care about the relationship because I put this energy into it when struggles arise. That leads us to the third and final phase of the relationship, which is the true commitment. This is the most appropriate time at, at which to choose marriage. Mm. Whereas our parents married during the romance phase, when they said, I do, the I was ego, and the do was not really a do, it was not really a commitment yet because the How person did they even know? was you know, their ego ideal. Yeah. Didn't really know each other yet. Anyway, when you do know each other and you've gone through the conflicts and worked through them enough so that you make a full-on commitment to one another that uh, we're going to stay through our experiences with each other in ways that help us work through them. 
when this happens, now it's no longer ego and ego ideal. It's no longer ego to ego. It's uh, ego-less love. That is the topic of the book. How to have an ego-less love in relationships and how to give up ego in favor of self-esteem and how to expand our sense of where our love goes, where is it directed, to include all beings. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk for a moment about the... Well, when, when I hear you mention egoless love and um, in favor, um, a love in a relationship in favor of tending the relationship instead of tending one's ego, it brings up this immediate question for me that I, I, I know I've heard other people echo about Buddhism in general and the extension of loving kindness. And, and it's this question of, and and I I know you're going to get at this with the question of how to be egoless and have self esteem, and mm-hmm. and that's like how do you know when you're being appropriately egoless in a relationship that's not healthy um, versus inappropriately, or in other words, like how do I keep myself from being a doormat? in this in the name of loving kindness to a partner who actually isn't treating me well i understand what you mean um let's use the analogy of goldilocks so she notices that one bowl of porridge is too hot the other, and so she instantly rejects it. She notices that the other, one of the others, is too cold, so she instantly rejects that. And then she comes to the one that's just right, and she eats it all. So she's showing us something important about how to have a happy and effective life. We're continually being faced with a spectrum. At one end is too much. That's the bowl that's too hot. At the other end is too little. That's the bowl that doesn't have enough heat, it's cold. And then in the middle is the just right, which Aristotle's says is where virtue is. It's always in the middle, not at the two extremes. So with regard to ego, and ego is simply the Latin word for I, but it's come to be um, associated with a swagger, with arrogance, with selfishness. That's when it's at the far end of the spectrum, too much ego. And at the other end of the spectrum is not enough ego, so you're a doormat. Mm -hmm. And you have an impoverished ego as opposed to a deflated ego as opposed to an inflated ego at the other end. 
And right in the middle is the ego that is strong enough to stand up for your rights, but not cross the line and retaliate as the inflated ego loves to do, nor cross the line and let people walk all over you as the deflated ego does. And my example is very simple. The, the best character that I can picture who shows us what it would look like to have less ego and more self-esteem would be Atticus Finch in the To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, can you describe that a little bit more? Shows you what you would look like. You're tender and loving toward the people around you. You're respectful of everyone, even those who hate you. You will never retaliate, but you will fight for justice. And you will do all this in a humble way. But no one will ever doubt that you do have strength. That's what it would look like to be in the middle of the spectrum of how to be human. From that middle place, and only from that middle place, is true love possible. The one who's at the far right, which is the impoverished ego, the not enough ego, the doormat, may look like he or she loves you, but actually it's just fear and appeasement. The one at the other end, at the far left, the one who is inflated, swaggering, big ego, can't love, but looks like he or she cares about you because he or she focuses on you, but actually the focus is to see what he can get from you, mm. not because he really wants to look into you. Whereas the one in the middle is capable of looking into you, and so that's why it's the only place where love is possible. I'm making an important connection that we rarely hear about, which is you're loved by someone who has true self-esteem. You're not loved by people at the other ends of this spectrum. Yeah. It only looks that way. Make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I was just on the line with a coaching client earlier and talking about that distinction of, um, you know, what it like, what it's like to feel that intense desire from someone who needs you and how compelling that can be. And yet deep down you, there's a recognition that that's not going to lead me to that place of being healthy and happy and focused on our growth. It's not, not really a sustainable path um, for love. What, 
since we're talking about this, I'm wondering, um, do you have kind of a quick way for someone to be able to identify for themselves like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm more toward the doormat part of the spectrum or I'm more toward the, I don't know, maybe we should just call it the narcissistic side of the spectrum, even though I I did notice that you, you write about healthy narcissism. Um, so how would someone identify? Like, I just want to do a quick self-assessment and see, okay, actually... This is where I this is where I am, and and then we can maybe talk for a minute about the correction for people to help them be more in the porridge is just right place. That you, I guess, that you would um, notice that you're assertive enough to state your needs, but not aggressively so that you would demand that they be met nor at the other end of the spectrum afraid to ask for what you want or even afraid that you want it afraid even to have such a feeling what feeling to be fully loved and my one of my ways of talking about how you know that you love yourself is really the same way that you know that you love someone else. And it goes all the way back to our original needs in life. We were born with many needs, of course, but five specific needs stand out. I call these the five A's and I talk about them in the how to be adults in relationships and how to the adult in love. Yeah, let's bring those into the conversation. So you had a need for attention. You needed caretakers, parents, to be focused on your needs attentively in an engaged way. You needed, as you started to show a certain personality, start to emerge as your unique self. You needed them to accept you as you are uh, uh, rather than try to make you into what they needed you to be. You needed as part of that for them to cherish you, appreciate what you felt and appreciate you as a person. You needed them to show affection in physical ways. And finally, when it was time for you to go, like first day of school, you needed them to allow you to do that rather than cling to you or hold you back. So these five A's, attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing, our original needs are the same needs we have all through life. They also add up to a reasonably good definition of how love is shown. I love you when I pay attention to you rather than am self-centered. I accept you rather than judge you 
I appreciate you rather than take you for granted. I show you affection in physical and ways that are appropriate to the nature of our relationship. And I allow you to live in accord with your own deepest needs and values rather than trying to control you. So if we take that as a kind of a reasonably clear description of how we know that we love someone, it will also tell us how we know that we are loved. I'm loved when you give me the five A's. You're loved when I give them to you. When we give them to each other, that's called intimacy. When I give it to myself, that's called healthy self-love, which is the answer to the original question you asked. How do I know that I'm showing myself love in a healthy way that builds my self-esteem? I am paying attention to my needs. I am accepting myself as I really am. I am holding myself as valuable, appreciating myself. I am taking care of my body. That's affection. And I am allowing myself to make the choices that reflect who I am rather than what other people insist that I become or want me to be. Yeah. So love is all wrapped up in these uh, deeply significant dimensions of how to be a human. Yeah, I loved how in your book you also identify how uh, those acts of self-love are actually uh, a way of showing love to others as well, that it's you're being loving to other people by loving yourself, mm -hmm. which feels like a really important distinction um, because there's this notion of sacrifice in relationship. Like I have to, I have to, I, I think it's common for people to abandon themselves in relationship. They may see it as service to the relationship. They may see it as service to the, a really um, needy partner. Mm -hmm. um, so to be able to turn that attention inward in the way that you articulated, I can see that being a really powerful way to, to always be able to show up fully you. Yeah. Yes. That certainly makes sense. Since we're talking about the A's, the, the five A's, you also had the four A process that you talk about that seems really powerful for, um, handling when the shit comes up in a relationship um, or within yourself, if you're hearing like negative self-talk, like, oh, you know, I, I messed up again or whatever it is. So could you talk a little bit about that process and how it works both internally and then maybe in relationship to situations that might come up with a partner? It mainly refers to the two most common fears, because this, this is a foray process which, I'll, which I will explain, um, that helps us 
work with the fears that come up in relationship. And that would be the same as the, the fear of letting love fully happen. One is the fear of abandonment. I'm afraid that the other person will leave me. And this leaving could be both physical or emotional. So some people could be living under the same roof, but they left each other long ago. Mm -hmm. Or the fear that you'll get so close that you'll smother smother me and I won't be able to be myself. Mm -hmm. That's called the fear of engulfment. So sometimes we fear that the other will go too far away, fear of abandonment. Or we could fear that the other will get too close, fear of engulfment. A healthy relationship is one in which I don't feel abandoned when you are freely yourself. And I don't feel engulfed when you show intimacy toward me. And that's a hard one because both of these fears go all the way back to childhood when we might have been continually abandoned by our parents emotionally because they couldn't attune to our real needs. And every time that happens, you feel abandoned, for instance. Let's say you were sad about something, and instead of appreciating that feeling that you were having and mirroring it and saying, oh, I can see that you're sad and I can understand why you would be sad. And to kind of um, join you in the experience of your feeling, instead of that, they said, Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Well, that's the equivalent of an abandonment because you're not allowed to have that feeling safely. Mm -hmm. Or they could have been hugging you, squeezing you, uh, micromanaging you, controlling your every little move, scrutinizing you. That is the experience of engulfment. So... Pretty much all of us have had some kind of experience of either of these two primitive fears in the course of life, especially in early life. And they don't go away. They stay with us for all our life. But I propose um, a way of working with that, which, and this would apply to any fear. Um, and it's four, easy to remember, like four words that all begin with A. First, admit that you're afraid. So tell your partner, you know, when you hug me for this long, I start to feel antsy and I get a little scared that I'm being smothered. Secondly, you allow yourself to feel the fear. So your second statement is, but I want you to keep hugging me because I want to keep feeling this fear so that I'll be able to get over it and realize that I'm not really going to get smothered. Mm. I'm speaking in sweat. Your third A is acting as if the fear could not stop or drive you. 
that's what you did when you said, but keep hugging me because I don't want the fear to stop the moment of closeness that's happening. And then fourth is your affirmation that uh, you repeat throughout the day. Uh, I am letting go of my fear of closeness. I am letting go of my fear of abandonment. I am uh, letting go of allowing fear to stop or drive me, you know, however you want to express it. So I call this the 4A approach. You admit that you're afraid. You um, allow yourself to feel the feeling. The most important one is you um, don't ever let the fear stop you. So feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's the way I've heard it expressed very well. Yeah. And then finally, your empowering affirmation. I have, um, I am letting go of my fear. And one of the uh, sources of this idea came from a science fiction book that I read long ago, which many people have read, called Dune by Frank Herbert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in this book, the characters had a very specific affirmation. And I think it's very powerful. And this would be like the fourth A, this, but it also includes the, um, uh, all of the A's as you will hear. It goes like this. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Wow. So that pulls the whole thing together. I guess it does. I let myself face the fear. I admit that I'm afraid. And I'm going to let it go through me. That's the, you know, allow it to go through like lightning through a lightning rod, going to ground, give it back to Mother Earth. And then I will notice that I remain and fear is gone. And uh, that's the equivalent of true letting go of fear. We will always have fear, but we don't have to be overwhelmed by it. And, in the ways that we usually are. I can imagine that being so powerful, especially because I think typically someone might, like I might stop at, well, I have this fear and so, you know, you're hugging me and it, I get afraid and, and so the conversation becomes about that. Well, like how do we manage that thing or how do we, um, how do we change it so that Maybe you're not hugging me, but you're finding other ways to show me affection where I don't experience the fear. That's all about fear management. And I really like how your practice allows someone to take responsibility for their fear and 
and to experience the victory of what the other side of fear looks like. Um, that's very well put, Neil. And I, I, I believe that's very true. You don't want to manage it. It'll just, that doesn't reduce it. What reduces it is I'm going to stand it one more minute than I can stand it. Mm. I'm going to endure one more minute than I can stand. Yeah, I'm, I'm just... Rather than, oh, oh, don't, oh, do it this way so I don't have the fear. Right, yeah. yeah that wouldn't really be a helpful way to grow. No. No, and, and I said this earlier, but I love the point that you make in your book about having a goal of, of a relationship. Like there, I think there were three main goals. One is to be happy, though obviously you're not going to be happy all the time. The other is to be healthy. And the third was to be growing and evolving. Yes, and I even think that one of the main purposes of a relationship is to um, grow as a human. That, you know, it's, it's not only about happiness, it's also about finding out where our personal work is. That's mm-hmm. what growth means. I find out, for instance, how much is left over from my childhood. What scars did I come into adulthood still uh, bearing in my psyche? Uh, I talk about this in detail in my other book, which is the title says it all, When the Past is Present. There isn't any relationship in which you don't bring your childhood into it. And so sometimes the partner has your mother's face or your father's face and vice versa. You have her or his mother's face or father's face. And so some of what we say to each other and do with each other goes back to that. And in, in a healthy relationship, you take responsibility for that. And you immediately say, oh, wait a minute. I think I'm looking at you as I would look at my mother. Or I think what you just said must have reminded me of something my father used to do to me. And um, I want to work on that. I want to process the things that have happened in my past and let go of them so that they're not sitting here between us. That kind of work I also call an act of love. Because what you're saying is, I want to work on this body-mind and make it the best possible instrument to fulfill the purposes of our loving relationship. So that would be the equivalent of, I want to uh, become healthy enough to have a truly loving bond. It doesn't happen just because you get all goosebumps when you're with somebody. Every single person, without exception, 
as carryover issues from the past. And they can get in the way of our having a relationship that works. I used to think that it was only the people who had a harsh experience in childhood, only the ones who were neglected, abused, controlled, um, treated in ways that, that were harmful or damaging. I used to think those are the people who uh, carry over issues from childhood and those issues get in the way of effective relating in adulthood. But from careful questioning of clients over the years about their childhood, I began to notice contradictory to my own belief, and I did notice this before I wrote the book, How to Be Adults in Love, that even if you came from a Donna Reed childhood, you will still have issues. That shocked me because I thought, well, wait a minute. If you had the ideal family life uh, with the, you know, the beautiful smiling mother who is constantly giving you just the right attention, just the right acceptance and so forth, you should be the healthiest specimen there could possibly be. Mm -hmm. But, uh, God knows why, it's just a mystery that even with that, um, you still have some kinds of some kind of issue that you still carry with you and that gets in the way. It just seems like it's kind of built into us that we don't go from phase to phase in total healthful clarity. It's going to be like, like the equivalent of it would be a rare student who got everything, absolutely everything in Algebra 1 and carried that over to Algebra 2. That would be very rare. Most people most kids would have not quite understood the binomial theorem or factoring in such a perfect way that when they were confronted with it in algebra two, they uh, could do it. They could work with the new problems perfectly. That would be hard to picture that anybody could be like that. So it's something like that with childhood. Like you go from childhood to adulthood, one to two. And no matter what happened in one, and no matter whether you were an A student and had A, a student parents in the way they treated you, you still don't really have it all. Yeah, to go with the, the metaphor, it's almost like that there when you meet up with a partner you've encountered a variable that you couldn't have counted on 
Yes. Oh, yes. That's another way to put it, right. There are variables that you didn't take into account. I'm curious, getting back to what you were saying about like this, this amazing picture of being in relationship and recognizing, oh my God, like I'm turning you into my father right now, or I'm turning you into my mother and I don't want to do that. And uh, like, that seems like a perfect situation. And it occurs to me that more frequent, frequently when, when I am projecting my mother onto my partner, I'm in a state where I'm not fully me. I'm, I'm a little triggered or something. And I'm speaking I for myself as well as for anyone listening. Is there a way that, and in those situations, it's probably more likely that my partner is going to feel like, whoa, he's not seeing me right now. He's, he's projecting something onto me. So in those moments for the partner who's feeling like, oh my God, I'm being treated like his or her mother or father or uncle or that person who you know, did that horrible thing when they were a teenager or whatever it is, is there a way for them to speak up in a manner that is not confrontational and that's, that's an example of loving kindness and that yes. might engender change? Yeah, once again, let's use the analogy of Goldilocks. On one end of the spectrum, far left, we have, uh, well, let's not go by left and right, because it might sound political. political. Let's <laughs> say on one end of the spectrum, we have overdoing it too much. Uh, Which would sound like? A New York way of talking. I'm not your father. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I'm not your father. Stop treating me like that. Yeah. With it. <laughs> uh, Guilty. Connecticut, so, <laughs> so I'm not making fun of New York. But I mean, the way people see it. See, right. People speak up clearly and could sound aggressive. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have saying nothing, which is, you know, just kind of going along with the program, not speaking up at all. That would be more of a namby-pamby kind of passive style. Yeah, you know when you were talking to me like that, I was really feeling like maybe you were treating me like your father. Something like that. No, that would be the healthy way to say it. Oh, it would? <laughs> yeah, because you're saying, you're saying it in a way that's non-threatening, but you are saying it. Got it. By any chance, are you seeing your father's face on me right now? Because from what you told me about the way your father was toward you, it, it, maybe I am being like that, and I don't want to be like that. So let's try to ask ourselves, okay, what works and what doesn't work, what triggers the past and what doesn't. Yeah, and I love that. If the, other, if the other person were truly healthy, the one who was triggered – he would say, oh, I'm so glad I was triggered because now there's some other scar that I can work on <laughs> regarding the, the father-shaped hole in me, H-O-L-E. Yeah. Because we all emerge from childhood with a father-shaped hole and a 
mother shapes whole. And we look for someone who will cover it up and stitch it all together so that it is no longer there. But the human psyche is not like that. The whole never totally goes away because the stitching is like embroidery. There are some threads that are holding it together, but you can still see through them. They're not like the sutures in surgery that lead to a complete closure of the whole. They're not those kind of threads. They're the kind of threads that um, are like what's used, in, I don't know the name of it, but what's used in embroidery. So, you know, you embroider something, but you still see through the holes between the threads. Yeah. That's the best we can get from, from the work we do on healing our past. I'm not a believer in, oh, it's totally healed, now you're fine. Just as I'm not a believer in, oh, I totally got Algebra 1, so now I can do Algebra 2. Actually, it's, I got Algebra 1 as best I could, and only the guy who invented Algebra 1 know, really knows the whole thing. But I've got enough that I can do Algebra 2 successfully. So I've got enough work done on my childhood that I can do an adult relationship effectively, though I don't have it done perfectly. No one really does. And what's a good way for a partner who's really growth oriented and, you know, hears this and says, oh my God, this is speaking to me in a way that this never has before to to bring it up with their partner and hopefully foster that growth impulse in their partner. If they're not single and doing all their healing work and waiting for the, for the perfect um, chance to, to get into a relationship with a growth oriented person who's doing their work, if they're already in relationship, what would you say would be a good way for them to, to sponsor growth in their partner? Um, I suggest if you, if you have the book there. Yep, right here. And in the book, I have a section called Safe Conversations. It's a practice that I recommend for people in relationship. Could be friendship, could be uh, intimate relationship, could be um, um, parent to child. Uh, and, and there I say that um, it's really helpful if people at some point sit down together and talk about um, very important issues and to do this in a way that has no judgment, no, you, don't even, you wouldn't even um, respond to each other, but you ask very specific questions. So here are examples of the questions that partners could ask of each other. 
Great. First, how were my early needs handled in childhood? So you ask your partner, how did your parents show you attention? How did your parents show you that they accepted you? How did they show that they valued you? So I'm going through the five A's. And then you ask the same question of the other person. How did your parents show you attention? So your first question is, uh, or a series of questions is, how did your early, how were your early needs handled in childhood? Your second theme question is, how can my needs be met now in this relationship? So you say, this is the kind of attention that I need from you. And secondly, this is what helps me feel that I'm getting it. And then the partner says the same to you. Okay, if you want to show me attention, this is what feels like healthy attention to me. And likewise with all the five A's. This is the kind of acceptance I need. And of course, you're comparing these to the way they were shown or not shown in childhood. And then your next, and obviously you would only do like a little bit of this exercise at a time because this is uh, kind of a lot for anybody to go through. Right, safe and lengthy conversations. <laughs> yeah. How were feelings handled in my childhood, for instance? Mm. How was sadness expressed? How did my father respond when I was sad? How did my mother respond when I was sad? How was anger shown? How did they show anger toward me? Was I allowed to show anger toward them? How was fear expressed? How was joy expressed? Was it okay with them when I was happy? Were they happy? And then always you go to now. So you go from childhood to adulthood. In my relationship right now with you, how can I express my feelings in such a way that you will feel safe with them? So, for instance, and, the, and now I'm reading from the book, are there any feelings you do not see as appropriate for a man to show or a woman to show? What is our plan and agreement about our expression of feelings? For instance, how can I show my sadness? How can I show my anger? How can I show my fear? How can I show my joy in ways that fit for you? Then you can ask at another time, how were conflicts handled between your parents? How did your parents handle conflicts with you, between you and them? And how do you want to handle conflicts in our relationship? Was free speech encouraged in your household so that you felt safe to bring up your needs, speak your truth, comment on what people said, state your opinion? Or did they say, children are to be seen, not heard? And then how can we guarantee free speech between ourselves? Then you might want to go into how was alcohol used in your family? How do we use alcohol in our relationship? And so forth. So you're talking about, you have a conversation about your childhood and how things happened, and then you compare it 
to how you want things to happen in your present relationship. And by doing this, you find out a lot about <clears throat> how your partner understands things. For instance, if your partner is used to horrible abuse, love, uh, terrible um, experiences that happened when your father was in a drunken rage, it makes it easier for you to understand why he or she is so afraid of your anger because anger is a trigger that casts you back into the past. So when you work on this kind of thing through safe conversations, you are doing something loving because you're helping, because you're loving yourself and you're helping the relationship have more love in it. What is love in this instance? That you care enough about each other that you want to have the best relationship you can have, one in which what happened in childhood no longer gets in the way. Mm. What just to to tie this back to our an earlier thread in our conversation, um let's just take anger as an example. What if um what if we don't agree necessarily on what a healthy expression of anger looks like? Or, you know, where's the boundary between feeling like if I'm speaking my needs, recognizing something as a true need versus like feeling like I'm actually, I'm expressing a need, but I'm, but in truth, I'm being held back by my fear. And that's why I have this need. Is that making sense? I don't quite follow. Could you restate it? Yeah. So in other words, we were, well, you were mentioning like, I, you know, let's talk about anger and, you know, my, you know, my father had drunken rages and my father didn't, but just to be clear. And so that makes me really fearful of anger. And so what's the difference between me making some requests around how anger is expressed versus being trapped by my fear of anger and wanting to go through like the 4A process around moments of anger? I make a distinction between true anger and abuse. The drunken rage from the father that we use as an example is not true anger. Mm. It's abuse. So it would help to see the difference between anger and abuse. I talk about this difference in the, how to be adults in relationships. Great. That it's abusive when it turns into blaming, violence, aggression, demanding, intimidation, controlling, and it's healthy anger when it's expressing the feeling and taking responsibility for it simply as my response to something that feels hurtful or unjust to me. And I do it within safe limits so that you're never afraid, you're only paying attention. Because you can tell that I'm coming from a hurt place and I'm telling you 
about something that bothers me and that I'm angry about, but you never doubt that I love you at the same time. So again, it's the way Atticus Finch would get angry. It's not the way Joe Pesci would get angry. Speaking <laughs> of them just as characters and movies. Right. Like the way people get angry in The Godfather. It's not that kind of anger. It's this other kind. And when you make that distinction, you realize nobody's really afraid of the true anger. What you're afraid of is all the um, intimidating, retaliatory, blaming, out-of-control style. Some of us have never seen true anger. We've only seen the more abusive kind. Right. And I imagine that all of those emotions, even the positive emotions like joy probably have, have a healthy expression and an unhealthy expression as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's always the Goldilocks. It's always too much, too little, and just right. And by but, the way, I forgot to mention one other angle of the Goldilocks story. Please. It's that she instantly rejected the too much and she instantly rejected the too little and stayed with the just right. That's an important part of the story when you apply it to relationships, that you know you instantly speak up. You don't just put up with it's too hot or too cold for 30 years. Right. You speak, you speak up fast the same way she pushed the bowl away fast. Right. So for those of you who are not in relationship at the moment, then this is an encouragement to speak up from day one. And for those of you who are in relationship, I would say this is encouragement to start speaking up now in a way that's reflective of being kind and compassionate. Well, Dave Rico, Dave Rico, thank you so much for being on our show today. You've been very generous with your time and your wisdom. And uh, Dave's book, How to Be an Adult in Love, Letting Love in Safely and Showing it Recklessly, is available um, on Amazon and other booksellers. I will have a link to Dave's site, which is daverico.com on my site, as well as uh, a link to download the show guide for this episode. You can, as always, text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, and follow the instructions given when you text that to the number 33444 to get the show guide. Or you can go to neilsatin.com slash adult, A-D-U-L-T, and uh, I will have the show notes there as well as links to Dave's books and his website so you can check out what he's doing, his workshops, all of those things. Um, and just a reminder, his new book, You Are Not What You Think, The Egoless Path to Self-Esteem and Generous Love is coming out right now, so it should be available by the time that you hear this interview. So, Dave Rico, thank you so much, and it looks like he has something to say. Yeah, I just wanted to um, say one final thing. Please. Which is to share my daily dedication. I use this every morning, and it's from the book, The How to Be Adults in Love, and it's also in my other book called The Power of Grace. 
So I would just like to read it out if you have another minute. I would love that. Thank you. I say yes to everything that happens to me today as an opportunity to give and receive love without reserve. I am thankful for the enduring capacity to love that has come to me from the sacred heart of the universe. May everything that happens to me today open my heart more and more. May all that I think, say, feel, and do express loving kindness toward myself, those close to me, and all beings. May love be my life purpose, my bliss, my destiny, my calling, the richest grace I can receive or give. And may I always be especially compassionate toward people who are considered least or last or who feel alone or lost. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave Rico. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.